so today uh, we're talking to Alex Campos of Venture, my friend. Alex, how are you doing today? It's good to see you. Nice to see you, Pat. How's it going? Uh, good. And everyone, uh, they won't see you, but they will hear you and hear me on this on this podcast. They just have to use their imagination. Uh, I'm I'm looking at Alex. He's sitting on this enormous throne. It looks like clouds around him. I can't really tell what it what it is, but <laughs> that's it. So yeah, now I just want to talk a little bit about uh, you know your journey uh, here and and venture and and where uh, where it is and where it's going. Obviously, you guys have been big players in this space and you're attracting a lot of attention, and that's really been good. But uh, I want to start at the beginning and uh, yeah, start at the beginning. So you started in Cuba, right? And sort of a, a, a one one attempted escape, and what happened? Yeah, so I was born in 62 and 63, you know, after Castro took over in 59, you know, everybody that, you know, wasn't communist was disillusioned and, and wanted to leave the country. And, and my parents were no exception. So my dad attempted to find a way out and the typical way out at the time, because it was illegal uh, to leave the country, uh, was to to try to arrange some type of a raft or boat or something to kind of cross that, you know, that stretch between Havana and Key West. And uh, so my dad arranged for a boat. We, we it was uh, my mom, my dad, myself, two, two aunts, two uncles, and two children about the same age I was, mm -hmm. for my aunt and uncles. And uh, so we were about one year old and uh, we headed out, you know, in a, in a remote area of Cuba, get on a boat and, 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 and go past the seven mile barrier, which is international waters. And then a shrimp boat was going to pick us up mm -hmm. and take us to, to, to Florida. But when we were approaching what we thought was the shrimp boat, it turned out to be a boat from, you know, from, from the U S excuse me, from, from the, um, from the Cuban government. And, and, you know, those guys were called the which is like almost like a Gestapo, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, you know, they had betrayed my dad and, and my uncles. And, you know, the men were were charged with illegal escape or whatever you want to call it. And they served three years in prison. The women and the children were, re, you know, detained for a few days, but they were let go. And so we basically went back to the house that we had just left that we were never going to go back to. You know, obviously that was very secretive because you couldn't tell your neighbors because they would turn you in. So we're back and and my father and mother, excuse me, my dad served three years in prison. So eventually he came out and and eventually we made it to the States. But it was, uh, you know, it, it took us seven years after that to make it. To yeah, so how did he get out the second time? So after he got out of jail, um, you know, he, he had... A relationship with his pastor in Cuba, Catholic pastor, and he had a way for my dad to get out through Spain. So my dad left and went to Spain. Now, Cubans have always been uh, have political asylum. Mm -hmm. You got to be in a country that's oppressing you in order to request political asylum. Well, the moment he left Cuba and went to Spain, he lost that automatic mm -hmm. political asylum mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. on U.S. law. But there was one exception. If you had been a political prisoner, then you had political asylum nowhere, no matter where you were. So what turned out to be a blessing for him is yeah. that his status 
providing him a, uh, an access from Spain to the United States. And fast forward in December 5th of 1969, my mother and I went from Havana to Miami and we made it there. And, and of course, legally in the sense, legally from the U.S.'s perspective, legally also in that case from Cuba's perspective, because, you know, they had different programs for you to leave in exchange for money, right? Castro mm. was trying to raise money. Yeah. So he would sell your freedom, not, you know, just give it to you. So. Yeah. And, you know, something I, I I never asked you, what was your dad's line of work? What, what was he? What, what did he so do? My dad, my dad was a carpenter and kind of a utility person. He, he, he actually worked for Otis Elevator. In wow. Wow. So it's funny because every time I get into an elevator and it says Otis, I always remember my dad. And yeah. He worked for Otis Elevator. So he had, a, you know, he, 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 he created those cabins and uh, and that's what his job was. But, you know, when he got to the United States, he, he worked for a building where he was a kind of a handyman for, mm -hmm. for, yeah. for a better word. So you were telling me that I know when you got to South Florida, they had enough Cubans in South Florida. And so they had other they offered other alternatives. What were those? Yeah, so so at the time you can imagine Cuba was bursting with with Cubans coming in and and so so the city couldn't really help you very much. I mean, there was enough of a Cuban population that you could be helped anyway through just, you know, people helping you, relatives, friends of relatives, that kind of stuff. But but what they were trying to do is get you out of Florida or South Florida. So you know, if you went to Union City, New Jersey or Chicago, Illinois, you would get a plane trip hundred dollars and a coat because it was winter time and that's how we wound up in union city new jersey so a lot of people don't realize this but if you look at a at a map of the united states by far the most amount of concentrated cubans are in south florida mm -hmm. but there's a a big bleep of cubans <laughs> in union city yeah new jersey area yeah and also chicago illinois yeah yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I went to high school in Jersey City, right next to Union City. And so I really well familiar with the Cuban population there. And so, yes, yeah, so everybody in the family got the money, right? Each person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would get every person would get the money. And, and that's how we wound up uh, in 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 Union City, New Jersey. So you made your way. So you're in New Jersey uh, for a while, uh, not not through high school, right? Right before high school, right? Actually, after I lived in Union City, my dad started a business in Perth Amboy, which is a mm -hmm. city. So like Union City is 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 15 miles north of North New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And Perth Amboy is about 15 miles south of North New mm -hmm. Jersey. Yeah. So we went to Perth Amboy, which also had a very large Hispanic population. And, you know, since, you know, I guess since I was like 11 or 10 to the time I was about 17, I lived in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And that's where I kind of really my hometown, if I mm -hmm. think of a hometown, it's really Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Yeah. And I would just say, having been to both Perth Amboy is a little better than Union City. Uh, no offense. So, yeah. but they had a market in Perth Amboy and a, and a famous neighbor. Say that again. They had a market in Perth Amboy and, oh, a, yeah. and a famous neighbor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so my dad had a store and, and it was a decorating store and my mom and him used to do that in Cuba. And, and so next door, like, like the wall to our store 
behind that was a a store uh, what do you call this a beauty parlor like uh, mm -hmm. you know for hairdresser you know for women to go and have their nails done mm -hmm. and you know the old-fashioned kind of store mm -hmm. and you know there was always a lot of music playing and and my mom would always be complaining they're so loud <laughs> in the store it turns out it was bon jovi right that's his parents uh that's his parents store and and i guess he played the drums there in the back in the back area so obviously we were oblivious to who he was or what he would become but that was our next door neighbor it, it was your brush with fame it was yeah your brush with fame my claim to fame is there Yes, exactly. Okay, so after New Jersey, you made your way back to Miami. Yeah, so I tell people, if you're Cuban, you have to do a tour of duty in in Miami, right? That's just a must. That that's just a, a given. So so I I uh, my mom and dad divorced. My mom moved down to South Florida. Obviously, I was not an adult yet. I was 17. So I'm I'm you know going to South Florida, and uh, and. Eventually, my dad moved down there, but, you know, moved with my mom and and started a life in South Florida. And then how? Uh, yeah. So actually, you you developed a, a skill, I guess, in computers. Right. So what happened? You were pretty young. But yeah. So high school, I hadn't finished. Yeah. I hadn't finished high school. And, mm -hmm. you know, my mom and dad got divorced. I needed to work. So I dropped out of high school. I finished high school at night. And I, I wanted to go to college, but we couldn't afford college, right? There was not enough money. And and so, um, you know, I, I went, I literally took, Pat, one course in Miami-Dade Community College, <laughs> which was I wanted to be an architect. I knew I liked all the construction architectural <laughs> stuff. And one of the prerequisites at the time to be an architect, you had, because, you know, CAD, drawings and stuff were starting yeah. to you know very preliminary uh infancy stage so i took a basic course a, com a basic computer course fell in love with software mm. decided to completely you know drop out of uh, you know i only had one one class one semester dropped out of college and i said you know i'm, I'm gonna just go work and 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 develop my skills in the programming i loved it it was great and and, and, you know, today, as you know, I'm the CEO of Venture, but I'd give up my CEO seat in a heartbeat for my old CTO seat. So, <laughs> well, and you know, that must have been right at the very beginning of programming. What were they, are you, what are you using COBOL or Fortran or what were they using? Well, even something more basic than that, which was called basic, but, but you're absolutely right. You know, my age group, it, it was a hit or miss whether you made it into the technology range. So people my age group, I just turned 60. Mm -hmm. If you're 60 right now, you could have easily completely missed that tech kind of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, prowess, or mm -hmm. you could have made it. So it was a hit or miss. And and so, yeah, I programmed in, in basic, COBOL, Fortran. You know, I, I program in about 10 different languages. Wow. Spanish? Yeah, yeah, that one too. <laughs> so, okay, when did you start your first company? So, I, I worked for the banking industry. I started <laughs> as a teller in banking. Uh, my first job, uh, by the way, I'll never forget where I got my first job. It was a 
Henrietta's personnel service. <laughs> that is the person who found me. When I say my first job, my kind of first official job, you know, as a kid, I had newspaper routes. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I worked for a, for an ice cream truck, you know, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. I pumped gas at a gas station, mm -hmm. you know, I bagged groceries at a grocery store. Yeah. But yeah. my first real job that you could say, okay, I made it. <laughs> I was a teller. <laughs> at Pan American Bank that eventually got bought out by NCMB, which eventually became Nations Bank, who eventually yeah. became Bank of America. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so and by the way, I, do, you, do you have to explain to your kids today what a teller is? Absolutely. They have no clue. I showed them a <laughs> floppy disk the other day, and they're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> um, so, so, Pat, so, yeah, so Henrietta's personnel service <laughs> got me my first job. I'll never forget that name. I mean, this is a long time ago. And uh, so started as a teller, um, eventually worked my way up to head teller, to new accounts person, to, you know, branch uh, VP. So, so I worked my way, but simultaneously to that, I always had a uh, uh, you know a side job I guess a night job a uh, uh, weekend job right and it was my own right it wasn't working for someone else but either programming for people who were you know needing programming or eventually bought uh, a company uh, called Microcare and if you remember back then you would buy a computer this thing was you know cost you fifteen sixteen seventeen thousand dollars. And they were not as disposable as they are today. So you would need a service agreement. You would need an extended service plan to make sure that if that hard disk broke or if that machine broke, you you know, you know can't throw that away. So we, I bought a company called Microcare and, and was in the computer maintenance repair business for many years. So. Wow. And so that was like going to people's houses or they brought them to you? They... Actually, it, people didn't have computers at home at that time. They, oh, they, yeah. They, they were limited to businesses, right? So only businesses. So so it was our clientele was was businesses, right? Yeah. So so you know we would go to them for the most part, right? I mean they would bring them sometimes, but for the most part we would go and service them there, and you know it, and it was the equivalent of an extended warranty plan for the computer. Nowadays, you know Dell sells it to you built in. And most of the time, you don't buy that stuff because, you know, these things are so durable nowadays. But yeah. back then, that was not the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from the computer business, you end up in the insurance business and end up in Atlanta. So how did that happen? So, yeah, so I was in, in the insurance business and, and I was doing a lot of technology for the insurance vertical. Well, and... first of all, but how did you end up in insurance? So you're doing, you know, uh, you know uh, micro care, right? Right. So I, I was working at the bank mm -hmm. and, and the bank that I was working for at the time also had an insurance subsidiary. Okay. And I went, I was assigned to that subsidiary to go and automate and, and create more technology for it. Right. You know, <laughs> this is the beginnings of stuff. I mean, yeah. back then there was no digital documents back then yeah. you would microfilm like you <laughs> microfilm things. So, so like if you had a policy and it had a deck page and a cancellation notice and a reinstatement, <laughs> you would scan them, microfilm yeah. them and cut them into these little yeah. things and you would index them and you would go and retrieve them. And that's how, that was the closest thing you got to some form of digitization because that didn't exist. I mean, the laser printer, 
didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. We were still on dot matrix printers, right? So, yeah. so worked at a worked at an insurance company to automate that, and then eventually got uh, moved or or became a partner with someone here in Atlanta, Georgia, which is how my fate brought me to Atlanta. And what were they doing? What was the company in Atlanta doing? What was their better mousetrap? So, so they were premium financing. So premium financing, you know, nowadays, you know, I, you know, I, I that partner used to call it the, the, the buggy whip business. So, so when the car was invented, think about the guy who used to make buggy whips, right? <laughs> You know, whipping the, the horse, gone, no more, right? So so that's what eventually happened to premium finance or personal lines. It's still prevalent in the commercial lines, but in the personal lines business, you know, that kind of business went by the wayside. But at the time, it was pretty popular. And uh, and, and in finance insurance premiums, if you were, you know, you bought a car, you, you paid your car in installments, but you couldn't afford a a $1,500 policy for the year, mm -hmm. you would give 20% down and finance the rest. And that was what we did. We financed the rest. And, uh, but required technology required sending out notifications, uh, late notices, uh, uh, sending notices to the, to the, to the carriers, you know, that to cancel the policy, those kinds of things. And, and that's the business that I was in, in Atlanta with that particular partner named Dick Perry. And so, uh, what year did you move to Atlanta? Nineteen ninety-two. Okay, okay. So you horsed around a little bit in insurance for a while. Is that company still around or not? By the way, you no. ended up owning the company, right? Well, that company, yeah. So it, it was called Perry and Company, and mm -hmm. I eventually bought Perry and Company um, because partner passed away. So his brother and I bought out his estate. His brother passed away eventually, also. And I bought them out, but you know, it's still, it's still around. Mm -hmm. It's just not active, right? We're not doing anything with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what's the, what's the process to go from that, from Perry insurance to venture venture wasn't until 2008. So what actually happened in venture? Yeah. Venture was formed in two. Well, I, I, I stayed in technology, right? Wrote mm -hmm. a lot of software, stayed in technology, developed a lot of technology sold technology do you remember at the turn of the century when they were predicting armageddon because of yeah. y2k remember Absolutely. the whole thing absolutely all atms are going to fail everything you know look i think most people realize that nothing bad really really happened yeah. but but they did have to prepare for it right if they would have done nothing a lot of bad things would have happened yeah but the software that I had written, you know, in, in, in hindsight, I don't even know why it was to manage, you know, to, for, for insurance businesses, but I had written it with, with the century, right? The, the, the problem was that most computers trying to preserve space would only yeah. put the last two digits yeah, yeah. of the year and they would forgo the century. Well, when you forgo the century, when you get to 1999, <laughs> if you don't, if you don't have, it goes from 99 to 00. Yeah. So it looks like 00 comes before 99. So yeah. what happens to be a later date looks like an earlier date. Yeah. Yeah. So the century was a, a, an important component. Well, I had written the software with century built into it. Wow. And so I had a huge boom of, of sales 
for my vertical mm -hmm. because I had kind of foreseen or realized, hey, I better have a century. And so that became a big catalyst to, mm -hmm. to my growth in, in the technology business mm -hmm. and uh, continued to work on technology uh, throughout many years uh, leading up to when I started to invest in, in venture. Yeah. And by the way, when you asked if I remembered the turn of the century, I just want to be clear for our listeners. I remember going from the 20th to the 21st. I do not remember going from the 19th to the 20th. I'm not that old. I just want to no, clarify. No, I, I figured that. I, okay. I, I was focused on the 19th through the 20th. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, venture, tell me the venture story. It was an existing company or you didn't start venture, right? You I didn't start venture. Actually, venture was started by a young man named Tom Lindsay, who's still with us. Tom, Tom started a company called Ion Business Solutions. Mm and eventually renamed it to Venture. And I started to make an investment. This happened in 2004. I started to make an investment in 2008. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2008, I started to put a you know, sizable amount of money. Um, you know, the company was struggling to grow and to turn profitable. So in 2012, I eventually decided to buy out the rest of the shareholders and to kind of convert my my loans to the company because I had invested in the form of debt into uh, capital and, and basically became the sole shareholder of venture in 2012. Very good. And what uh, what did you find then? What was it? What was it like? What did it need? What? Yeah. What, what, you know, when you we, we landed on that planet of venture, what what was it like? What were they what were they doing? Well, venture was not profitable at the time. Uh, it was losing some money, and uh, which is what concerned me and precipitated my need to to bu to buy the whole thing so I can control the outcome of it. Uh, but you know, it we we entered into or we had already been in the in the staffing business, mm -hmm. and the staffing business could be difficult and 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 risky. Yeah. If if you try to manage it in a traditional way, venture had really created a better mousetrap by having the ability to track not just the client, but the client's client, right? In this yeah. case, the client being the staffing company and the client's client being the endpoint where the staffing company is placing the, the temporary employee. We created technology to allow that to happen, and we were able to monitor things differently than most. So, so we were really a trendsetter there, right? And uh, and and we were ahead of the curve. Uh, you know, Prism, Prism HR was not around. The predecessor yeah. to Prism HR, which was yeah. HRP and and you know Citrix and and more antiquated, yeah. uh, you know DOS based terminal based type of product which you know obviously was not web enabled and a few other things yeah. so so you know we tried to build as much as we could around that to yeah. improve on the ecosystem and, and we were pretty successful for many years how many uh worksite employees did you have when you bought when you bought the company i would say less than twenty thousand, and we had Less than twenty thousand. We had roughly two hundred and fifty million dollars in payroll at the time. And today, uh, today, um, on a direct basis, we do about thirty-five billion dollars in payroll, and we have on a direct basis about eight hundred fifty thousand WSCs, 
And on an indirect basis with our HRO product, we are close to 3 million. So that's some significant growth. So yes. I guess that'll be the understatement of the day for me, the significant growth. So tell me that story. What you know, obviously we all see it, we watch from outside and, and see the acquisitions, but uh yeah, tell me about that. Sort of the birth of that strategy and deciding, you know, we're is every PO faces, do we grow organically or do we grow by acquisition? Obviously, we require a lot of capital to grow by acquisition. And I'll talk to you about it uh, next is the integration of all that. So yeah, so what, what was the strategy at that point? It's like, uh, clearly you had the strategy is uh, to grow by acquisition and uh, and like, and how did that happen? How did that play out over the next, whatever, 20 years or 15 years? Actually, so in 2012, when I, when I bought the company, I did not grow through acquisition, it was all organic. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I took it from a negative company uh, over the course of five years to just under a billion dollars in payroll and about just under 10 million in EBITDA, more or less. And that happened over a five-year span from 2012 to 2017. Mm -hmm. In 2017, I realized, you know, for me to really, and, and I had other businesses at the same time. For example, I owned a company called Agency Matrix and, and other companies in the technology vertical. Um, I realized that I, I'd have to find a partner to come in, uh, you know, private equity firm to come in. And, I, you know, I did a search through a banker and eventually we landed on Solomir Capital, which is part of the Mitt Romney group or the Mitt mm -hmm. Romney family. And did my first private equity deal ever, June 30th of 2017. And it was then that I launched the M&A strategy. And the M&A strategy is something I had done before in other verticals. So, so not my first, you know, uh, acquisition uh, 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 concept, but, you know, it was very similar. You know, the thing that also payroll has, you know, like if, if you and I, Pat, we're in the banking business, mm -hmm. You know, traditionally, you have a lot of brick and mortar, or if you're in the restaurant business, a lot of brick and mortar. Yeah. It, 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 you can synergize some of that, but you can't, you can't synergize the waiters and the waitresses and the bartender. You can't take them to another location because mm -hmm. physicality is important. Their geography is important. You know, payroll is a very portable thing. Mm -hmm. You know, some some people say, well, you need to be in Florida, let's say physically, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, Orlando's is as far from Miami as Atlanta is from <laughs> Miami, right? Because <laughs> you're not going to go and deliver the payroll from Orlando to Miami. You're going to have to overnight it anyway. So, <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, if you're issuing a physical check, right? If you're sending <laughs> ACH, obviously even more portable. So, so, so I think that's something that has helped us is the this vertical lends itself to portability mm -hmm. and lends itself to synergizing and to consolidating operations so mm -hmm. so um i think one of the things that we've done really well is that we have you know i call it professionalize the m a side of the business so mm -hmm. i tell i tell my partners hey look i think we are the best when it comes to sourcing identifying underwriting closing and synergizing this particular vertical. If you ask me to go and buy a retail store across the street, we'd screw it up. We're not <laughs> built for that. But we are built to do HCM, PEO type of companies. We're, I think we're the best at it. 
So tell me a little bit about your model, because I know, you know, uh, companies really grapple with uh, integrating workforces, but your model is a little different than that. So what do you, you know, in terms of buying 100% and just integrating everybody, uh, that's typically not what you guys do. What's what's the model and how yeah, does it so, work? So, so our model recognizes a few things. Our model recognizes, number one, that most entrepreneurs, which is pretty much the whole entire PEO industry, if you think of the PEO yeah. industry, it's one giant entrepreneurship yeah. process, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the birth of this thing is, you know, you, you, the day before it was born, somebody would say, what, I'm going to lease my employees from you? It's going to be on your tax ID number? Are you kidding me? So so it's a very entrepreneurish industry. But yeah. so, so most entrepreneurs never are, are never ready to sell right in other words unless they're like really getting to the point where they need to retire and, and they're getting old enough that that's a factor you always feel that you have unused gas in your gas tank you always feel that you have a runway in front of you that you have not finished going down so our model takes that into consideration and says look we do not want to buy 100 percent. we want to continue to tap into your entrepreneurship so we want to do an 80-20 deal with you, which we would buy 80, you keep 20, you keep 20 in your own deal, right? So what that does, Pat, is it gives the, the, the entrepreneur, our new partner, you know, kind of pride of ownership, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as you know, we don't even rebrand our transactions and we don't rebrand them because we think that they, you know, somebody's worked 20 years to create a brand and a loyalty to it. And what are we going to do? Go blow it up in, in, you know, in two days? No, we keep the brand and, and, and having the, 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 the partner, the seller stay involved and stay engaged helps to also retain clients, right? Look, mm -hmm. any acquisition, any transaction is always going to have some noise. Mm -hmm. But I believe that we minimize the noise substantially that would otherwise be there even at a larger level because of our model. But there must be uh, economies of scale in terms on the back end, aren't there? Like it's like, right? So yeah. yeah so 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 we 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 think of these transactions in two pieces: operational side and sales and marketing side. Mm -hmm. So we bifurcate the operational side and we consolidate that into. A, a centralized operation. Now, centralized does not mean geography or geographic centralization. It means reporting structure centralization. Mm -hmm. And we decentralize the sales and marketing. So, so we, we take the, you know, let's suppose in a company there's 100 people, 80 of them are ops and 20 of them are sales. Mm -hmm. We take the 80 and we bring them into a consolidated centralized operation system mm -hmm. so we can leverage that but we leave the sales and marketing in a decentralized way so we get the best of both worlds it's great uh, that yeah it's interesting and, and clearly uh, uh it's uh it's working uh so you mentioned uh private equity i was talking about that a little bit so uh and i talked to uh, mark proberg about this as well is uh as uh, a couple of different aspects of it that I want to talk to you about. So as uh, somebody who was, who was used to running his business and being in charge, et cetera, what, you know, as, as again, as an outsider on that piece of this business, what's it like having 
overlords, I guess I'll find out my word, right? Because then you, all of a sudden now you've got investors, right? So now Alex isn't 100%, like you got investors. So yeah, how's that, how's that go? You know, so, so remember I told you I did my first private equity in 2017. So fast forward in 2021 after the pandemic, I did my my second private equity deal, and that's with StonePoint, right? And by the way, when when Solomir Capital and I felt that we were ready to go out and and look for a a a a, a private a second private equity mm -hmm. opportunity and a mm -hmm. new sponsor, mm -hmm. you know, we had a lot of suitors at the time, right? Now, not the best timing because there was a lot of noise because of COVID. But we had a tremendous amount of interest in 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 the company, and and it turned out to be perfect timing. But hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Mm. So so you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I brought you know we had probably thirteen fourteen suitors. I brought one of those suitors, which was Stone Point. I had developed a relationship with Jared Levine from Stone Point who I met through Gary Noak from Prism mm -hmm. at a convention. And since, you know, end of 2019, Jared and I had continued to maintain a relationship and a friendship. And, and I realized that this would be our next, you know, our next sponsor, our next home. But, you know, private equity wants to go through the process. The process is as important as the outcome. In my, in my, in my world, the outcome is more important than the process. But anyway, so we went through the process. And 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 at the end of the day, obviously, as you know, they prevailed. Uh, Stone Point, uh, you know, I, I I have the best partners in the world with with Jared and Will and and Chuck Davis and and their entire team. Uh, we we are blessed to have, I think, to have been or are with the two best private equity firms in the world, and and that is Solar Capital and Stone Point. They they've been amazing partners. They, yes, I, I am not a hundred percent owner anymore, as you can imagine, they've, they've made it a large investment. I'm still a very substantial, uh, shareholder, but they give me a lot of runway, a lot of freedom. They, they believe in me, they trust me. And, uh, I couldn't be happier with my relationship with my private equity. They've been amazing and continue to, to do so. Um, you know, Stone Point, uh, also was able to open up a lot of more capital markets to us mm -hmm. so and they have made us better you know their 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 influence and input into uh reporting and and strategy and stuff has been amazing so couldn't couldn't be happier pat and and i was scared when i did my first private equity to be honest with you because coming from an entire lifetime of being my complete and absolute boss to having shareholders that you know you gotta you know you gotta report to and explain things and you know it, 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 was, it was a little stressful thinking about it but I, I am uh, I am blessed and 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 I wouldn't have done it any other way. You 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 clearly made the adjustment. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so let me ask you about the other side of the table. And I asked uh, uh, Mark Probert the same thing. So that's receiving uh, uh, um, uh, private equity. So as an acquirer, what do you look for? What, you know, you've acquired a whole bunch of companies and there are, you know, a bunch of companies out there and I know they get, you know, a uh, hundred phone calls a week and they're, you know, uh, you know, the space pretty well, you know, the PEO space pretty well, but 
how what do you look for and how do you show up at a new company meet everybody for the first time and what's what do you want to know and and how do you find it out yeah so so i would say um you know a few things you know for the most part by the way we've done just under 60 transactions over five years um they probably 95 percent are payroll peo type and then there's about five percent that are strategic uh transactions um and and you know look i think who the people are the partnerships themselves right whether if we're buying obviously less than 100% it's more important right if we're buying 100% it's less important but if you're buying 100 if you're buying less than 100% the people who you're buying from is super important now as you can imagine pat with 60 something transactions i have a lot of partners i have a lot of different personalities so you know uh it it it, it could be challenging sometimes because you know everybody has a, a, a but i have also been blessed on that area i i can tell you that with those partners, uh, you know, we have great relationships. I continue to be very engaged with them. You know, we're pretty much an open book. But what do we look for? You know, we're looking for things that will grow, right? That's important to us. Growth is important to us. Things that enhance our ability. You know, every one of these transactions has something to offer to the collective, uh, whether it be a product or a process or a way that they do things. You know, I always tell our people, that this cannot turn into the venture way. It has to be the better way. And, and so we're always looking for things that our partners are doing that is better than what we're doing so we can adopt those. And, and I think, by the way, I believe we have the best talent in the industry because with all the transactions we've done, we've been able to accumulate amazing human capital, right? The human capital that we have is just out of, out of control good uh so that's a a a a byproduct of what we've done that that really we didn't set out to do that but it's been a byproduct of that um obviously growth is important to us uh diversity in the book of business uh you know risk management if they're taking risk uh, on workers comp but you know we think that whatever flaws these companies have we're smart enough, fast enough, and execute quick enough that we can correct those, right? So, so, so you know, some companies may not have the best risk management, but have a good underlying portfolio, we can fix that, right? So we take on those kinds of challenges because we're very fast and very quick to, to pivot and, and make the necessary corrections that, you know, maybe as a smaller company, they're either not noticing, can't handle, don't know, uh, we we can apply those those venture smarts to that. Yeah, and that that leads me to the question: is is you mentioned what these companies bring you? Uh, yeah, what, what does venture bring? Is the venture smarts? What you know? Uh, I know you talk a lot about execution. What what does the mothership bring to an acquired company? Yeah, I I, I you know I think you could say that we're the PEO for PEOs, and uh, and, and the reason is. I mean, look, a normal company is going to have one workers' comp policy. I know for many years prior to going on this journey, you know, every few years I'd be shopping for workers' comp because some company now doesn't like workers' comp anymore. They want to get out of the space or 
you know, a company gets taken over and, and gets liquidated, no fault of ours, but no longer in business. Now I got to go shop for another. Today, we have over 15 workers' comp carriers. We, when, when I started this journey five years ago, we had zero master healthcare plans. Today, we have five master healthcare plans. We were not able to sell open market. Now we pretty much represent every single open market carrier out there. So, so the plethora of products and capabilities that we can bring to the meat, the small and medium sized PEO that decides to join the venture family is really overwhelming. They can immediately tap into every one of our products, every one of our capabilities. We, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's obviously it's something we hear a lot about. You were uh, uh, featured in the June, July uh, um, 2022 uh, 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 magazine, and you talked there about get there faster. What's that mean? So, so get there faster came out of, so, so, you know, the guys from Zappos, you know, the, the shoe company, you know, very interesting entrepreneur who started that, you know, like really an amazing company and, 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 you know, they've always gotten tremendous marks for quality and, and customer service and all that stuff. Well, an offshoot of Zappos was a consulting company that was consulting for companies for kind of, you know, mission statement, you know, by the way, that get there faster is what is called a galvanizing statement, right? So that's our guy. And by the way, it would be equivalent to just do it right for Nike, right? So that galvanizing statement came out of one day session with those guys and my entire senior leadership on what was really what defined venture and what defined venture at the end of the day, and, and you can imagine all the gyrations of this and all the permutations of this, was that we represented to ourselves, to our clients, to, to, to the industry, get there faster. And get what there faster? It depends. It might depend on you. As a client, you might need you know, healthcare for your people. Well, we're going to get you there faster. You you might need more technology, better onboarding, better implementation. We're going to help you get there faster and ourselves also. So, so it's really been a great galvanizing statement for us and, and we're very proud of it. And uh, now as to, <laughs> as to, we, we call it the, the you, you've seen the skateboard. I have a skateboard. So what happens is, I've always believed in violent execution, right? And what does that mean? You know, violent execution is I wake up every morning with a sense of urgency. I want to go crush it every day. I get up every day with a sense of urgency. And, you know, a lot of companies don't do that. And, uh, and, and, and a lot of people don't do that. I do. I, 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 I need people around me that have that same sentiment, that have that same, you know, excitement about what they do. So that's what I surround myself with, with people who will execute violently. What happened is through that process, one of our guys um, read an article and, and it was, he says, Alex, this is you. This is, you know, this is, this is Alex Campos. And it was an analysis of, of startups 
And the ones who used a violent execution model, and, and by the way, I we called we used to call it violent execution, but not focused on on it through you know some kind of a system or anything. Anyway, but we found this article and it talked about it. And you really think about it, Pat. And we have a little graph diagram for it. So you know some companies will go out there and spend five years to produce that perfect car and roll out a car in five years that's really good really great product. We take a little bit different approach. In year one, we produce the skateboard. In year two, we have the scooter. Year three, we have the bicycle. Year four, we have the motorcycle. And then, excuse me, yeah. And year five, we have the car. And, and along the way, because we were already providing transportation, our car is going to be a lot better than their car. They have absolutely no experience in the real world. And we've had five years worth of experience in the real world. So we're going to deliver a better product. And in the meantime, you're not walking to work. You're, 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 you're taking your skateboard to work. You're taking your scooter to work. You're taking your bicycle to work. <laughs> you're riding your motorcycle to work. And eventually you're driving in the car. Yeah. Now with the other guy, you're going to walk for four years before you can drive your car. So, so good luck with that. So that's, that is what violent execution and what the skateboard is all about. Uh, it's brilliant. Brilliant. So tell me uh, two part question. What is the outlook for venture and what's the outlook for the PEO industry? Uh, so the outlook for venture is really very, very um, open right? You know, we have a lot of optionality. We're not just a great growth company on M&A. Uh, we also are doing great when it comes to organic growth. Um, we, we, we not only produce great top line revenue, but we also produce great EBITDA. So, so we feel that we have a lot of optionality. You know, look, there's a lot of companies out there that have revenue and no EBITDA. There's a lot of companies who have EBITDA and not very good organic growth. And, and companies, obviously, we're pretty unique when it comes to the M&A uh, engine that we built. My, my point is that because of that optionality, we really have a lot of different roads that we could go down. We are in no particular hurry, but because of our violent execution, we're always looking for the next opportunity. So... I would say that we are we 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 have optionality is the best way to put it. As far as the PO industry, amazing industry, absolutely amazing industry, very resilient to to change, very resilient to you know downturns in the economy. We saw that in the 2008 downturn. You know our penetration into the SMB is in diapers compared to where we can be, meaning there's a ton of upside here. Um, you know I think this industry has cleaned itself up over the years, right? I think uh, you know I, you know I think we've helped a little bit on that. You know we we've helped to improve companies that otherwise would have not made it or. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you, you, you'll buy a, a company that, that is in trouble. And I go, yeah, obviously, if, if I buy a company in trouble for the right price and I make the right changes, it's no longer a company in trouble. And, you know, it's very accretive and valuable to our shareholders and great for the people that we also transacted with. So 
but we do all kinds, right? We do the, the premier, pristine, beautiful, doesn't have any blemishes company, and we do the ones with some blemishes also. That's okay. And we make no apologies about that, and we think that those are great. That's contributed to having a better industry. That has contributed to our industry getting better every day. So, you know, I, I think, look, we have challenges. I mean, just, just last week, we had a major failure in the banking industry. And I got to tell you, we had a team that spent pretty much, you know, around the clock dealing with making sure that our clients were taken care of, that, that we protected our company, but we also made sure to service our clients. And, uh, and, and those challenges, our industry can rise to that occasion when needed. So I think we have an amazing industry and an amazing group of people. Uh, second to the last question, and by the way, I agree. We're both biased, but I agree. Uh, what's your advice to someone new to this industry, either a startup or a new CEO, someone taking over a PEO or someone just getting into the industry, uh, you know, again, starting up a PEO? What's your advice? Violent execution. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, look, I think, I think that is important that... Um, you know, that they look at their options, right? I mean, picking the right software is important, uh, making sure that your platform is good, making sure, you know, there, there's there's redundancy. You know, a lot of the things that we see in some of the smaller companies is, is a lack of attention to redundancy, right? I'll tell you a little story. So we are always thinking redundancy, but, you know, we use FedEx and, and we had UPS as a backup to FedEx, knowing that sometimes we might need, you know. So fast forward, we, we, we had them both. Fast forward, FedEx had a major storm in their hub in, in Tennessee, shut down FedEx. When we went to use the UPS system, guess what? We had it, but the account had expired because we hadn't used it in about three years. So here we are scrambling at the last minute trying to get that account reinstated. What's the moral of that story? We now send out packages under both carriers simultaneously to different places. We use them both so that we have an active backup plan, right? So redundancy in our business is critical. Because by the way, how many industries do you know? You know, let's take weekly paychecks. How many industries do you know that you have to deliver week after week after week after week for your clients? And anytime you miss that delivery, you're not, they're not happy with you and you stand to lose them. You know, there's not a lot of people who have to provide that kind of level of service all the time, right? Most of the time you buy something from somebody, they deliver it one time, you pay for it, and you may never see them again, right? It's a supplier, it's a, it's a vendor. Our case is constant delivery. So I would say that automate as much as you can because humans make mistake and you have to try to eliminate as much of the human factor as possible. Yeah. So, you know, I hope that's helpful. No, it's hugely helpful. And, and again, to your point, we have to deliver every week or two weeks and we have to deliver something people notice 
if it doesn't get delivered, right? I make that point all the time. It's not like we're delivering milk or bread and they don't get it. Okay, they'll get it the next day or- Yeah, they can eat something later. else, right? They can eat something else, right? There's no bread, we'll, we'll, we'll eat crackers. There's no milk, we'll drink Coke, right? right. <laughs> That's not. If there's no money and your paycheck, there's nothing going to happen in that household. So we are very conscious of that. We understand that. We take it very seriously and and and- and we go out of our way to make sure that we are we are delivering for our clients. Okay, so last question. What is something people don't know about Alex Campos? I know you happen to have a great friend who's a professional golfer. That stuck with me. But what's uh, what's something we don't know? Wow, that's a trick question, Pat. Right? right? Uh, <clears throat> something that you don't know. Man, uh, yeah, you, you should have told me this so I can plan for this. <laughs> I know I should have given you a heads up. Like, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm an open book, but let me think about this. Something that you don't know. Maybe I should ask Stacy. Oh well, then then you're gonna get a book. <laughs> <laughs> you you're gonna need to make like a five hour podcast. <laughs> But yeah, I, I am impressed by the fact that you've got a professional golfer as a friend. That's uh yeah, Stuart is an amazing guy. We we were neighbors, literally next door neighbors. His garage and our garage kind of looked at each other and and uh so we sponsor him and uh and, and we do we do a really nice job with 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 um with with Stuart and, and what he represents from a brand standpoint for venture. And he is an amazing human being. Uh his wife Lisa is very good friends uh with with Stuart. But well, you know what you may not know because I mean you know my business world, but I have five children. Olivia's my oldest, Alexander is second, then I have Ronan, Brielle, and Malia. Mm -hmm. And uh you know I'll tell you a little story about about um Olivia. Olivia was going to go to learn to be a, of all things, a rocket scientist. I was actually pretty pleased because, you know, I said, you know how those conversations go, well, what do you think? You're a rocket scientist? I was <laughs> going to say, no, but my daughter is, right? <laughs> but she she didn't like the, the rocket side of things, so she became a chemical engineer. She worked for Chevron for many years, did a great job for them. She now works for Venture, by the way. She 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 runs our benefit administration system, and uh, you know, very proud of all of my kids. Uh, and uh, but you know, I have five children, and uh, I don't know if people know that just because you know they they know my business side of the of of, of the company or of me, but not necessarily the the personal side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. That's exactly right. And by the way, the golfer Stuart is Stuart Sink is the golfer. Stuart Sink. Yes. yes, yes. So do you do you help him a little bit, like on a swing? Do you co help coach him a little bit on some sometimes. By the way, I I'll tell you one last joke about that. So I don't really know very much about sports in general and golf in particular. So I always used to tell him that it was great that he lived next door to a guy who didn't really care about golf because, you know, I mean, that's such a public thing, right? You know, you miss the putt on the, on the eighth and then, you know, you get home and the guy next door is a big go. Hey store, what happened on the eighth? You missed the putt. What's going on, man? You should have done this or you should have done that. He didn't ever had to worry about that with me because I don't know golf. So, but the one thing I can tell you, I live in a community, gated community, whatever. Anyway. So, um, for many years, people would say, well, where do you live? Right? You know, so I would have to say, well, you know, it's, it's 
two blocks, you know, go through the metal church gate, two blocks, make a right. That's my cul-de-sac, right? I had to explain all of that. So it was just always cumbersome to explain where people were. I lived there and and until I realized that, hey, I just had to say I live next to storage sink and everybody knows where I live, right? So it was great. So I, I told Stuart that I used to think of him as my big chicken. Now, for those of you who don't know, there's a suburb called Marietta and there's a famous there's a famous restaurant, and on top of that famous restaurant, there's this gigantic chicken. So everybody in Marietta who gives directions will basically say, go two streets down, turn left on the chicken, and everything is around, around the chicken. So I would say to Stuart Sink, you're my big chicken because I give directions to my house based on you. So that is what I've always said to him. That's great. It's that's so uh, uh, incredible because I ran into Stuart at the airport and I asked him where he lived and he said right next to Alex Campos. So <laughs> that's that's, that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you've been so generous with your time. I really do appreciate it, and uh, I, I really wanted you to be uh, one of my uh, uh, first guests on this. And we'll we'll be talking to a lot more people uh, throughout the uh, weeks and months ahead. But I really do appreciate it. And again, your story, uh, you know, you hear it all the time. It, it is the American dream. It absolutely is. And it's just uh, such an unbelievable story of uh, coming here and making your way in this country. And uh, you've done okay. Yes. And we live in the best country in the world by far. I know we have sometimes our political challenges and our challenges, but there is nothing uh, better than this. I had an opportunity to go back to Cuba one time, and it was in five, five, six years ago. And Pat, you, we are, we are so blessed to live in this country. I am so blessed to, to, to be here, and and it, it's just an amazing country. We're glad you're here, pal. Thanks so much, Alex Campos. Adventure. 